This episode is sponsored by Coingaming.io. You'll hear more about them later on in this episode. What is up, everyone? I am Charlie Shrem, and you are listening and watching Untold Stories, where twice a week I get to dive deep with some of crypto's coolest people, most influential leaders, and really the brightest crayons in the box of our industry. Uh, and really, like now I'm starting to talk to people that are not just in our industry, but uh, those folks who want to join it or uh, feel that their industries can can merge with with our like beautiful space and our beautiful world that we live in. It's a gorgeous day. I'm coming to you from live from actually not live from sunny Sarasota, Florida. But uh, I started doing these live pre-shows before I started recording. So for those who are listening, know that on my Twitter, you can I started doing these like live pre-shows where I'm just getting the studio ready and talking about the show. And today I did this whole pre-show, getting everything ready, focusing on talking to you guys, answering your questions about what's going on in the space, that I forgot to get my soundboard set up, and then we had all these malfunctions. I almost lost the show today. So Jacques Voorhees, thank you so much for coming on the show, and and thanks for, for bearing with me this morning on the technical difficulties. And I'm really, really kind of excited for this episode. The last time we were talking before, the last time I saw you, um, I actually stayed at your house. Uh, I'm friends with your son, Eric Voorhees, that everyone knows. Um, and it's it's rare that the only other father-son combo in the space is really is you and Eric. And then you have uh, Dimitri and Vitalik Buterin. But that's really the only other uh, father-son combo that I know. Uh, and what's crazy is that I remember when I stayed uh, in your basement, I, I, uh, not that that sounds kind of weird, right? Um, there was, <laughs> <laughs> there was all... Uh, uh, remember you had like pictures of these beautiful boats and things like that. And I, I asking Eric, like, what was the deal? And oh, he yeah. told me your whole life story as a yacht builder. You were a press secretary for a U.S. Senate campaign. Uh, you're an executive pilot. You hold like different types of pilot's licenses with, with ratings. Uh, what's your favorite thing to do? Oh, sailing. <laughs> no, nothing else comes close. I'm sorry. All that other stuff is fun, but you just can't beat a sailboat sailing across the Caribbean. I'm sorry. That's as good as it gets. I'm jealous of my neighbors who get to do that. I see I see they keep their sailboats all summer. They have these big, beautiful sailboats. And then now winter, they're all gone. My wife just asked me today. She's like, there's this big sailboat that we get to look at out our window. Gorgeous. The mast is so high. It, the whole island can see it. But all winter, he's gone. <laughs> I don't know where he is right now. He went somewhere warm. I'll tell you, he went somewhere warm where the wind's blowing. It's cold in Florida <laughs> right now. You're in, you're in the, the middle of the country. It's probably a little bit colder. Uh, actually I'm in Dubai right now. I'm looking out on the Arabian desert. So not oh, in Colorado. all my friends are there right now. Every, the, the, the whole crypto world in Europe, especially left to Dubai because of like the cold, dark winter and the lockdowns. And apparently Dubai has been really crazy. Uh, I don't know, whatever you guys are doing out there, keep it up because I'm seeing now you can own foreign investments. Uh, company foreigners can own pieces of companies in Dubai now. So like the world is slowly opening up. But not only that, years ago, you created Polygon. This is like pre-crypto, which was a, a way for people like businesses and businesses to, to trade diamonds. And, and as far as I understand, uh, this was a, a huge marketplace in the late, that started in the late 70s uh, that, that removed the, the inefficiencies of, of diamond trading. What was like the world like back then for, for precious metals? Who was buying them? For what purpose? Were they doing, were, they, are people, were people buying precious metals then? for the same reasons that they're buying it like today? They had better reasons back then. Uh, that was back during um, a time, the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, Carter was in office. We had, uh, while the Fed was totally out of control, printing money faster than you could say money. 
uh, interest rates were were low, inflation was high, and everyone was trying to move into hard assets. And diamonds actually got swept up into that, along with gold and silver and, and other kinds of hard assets. And there was a, a mini diamond investment boom in the United States in the late 70s. And that's what actually drew me in and got me started building the company uh, that became known as Polygon, which which eventually did revolutionize the diamond industry. I was trying to create a platform for diamond investors, and I finally realized that was too difficult. There were too many problems with it. The technology couldn't deal with diamonds, but I retooled the platform for the regular jewelry industry, and that worked. There was enough inefficiency in the regular jewelry industry that Polygon could come along, clean that industry up. Uh, It was very disruptive. It, It changed all the markup structures and everything else and created uh, real liquidity in that diamond industry. And that, that is, is true today. There's lots of Polygon competitors, but in general, most solitaire diamonds now are traded over computer networks. Whereas back then, no one knew how to spell computer. The, the web hadn't been invented. So how, how was it done? Uh, with non-web technology. And, you know, people... <laughs> what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, I know. That's, non- that's it. Non-web technology. And I, I tell people the story of how we started this trading, this online trading platform back in the 70s. And they look at me like, wait, how do you move stone tablets across, you know, uh, HTTP protocols? And they, they, the web has become so all-encompassing that people can't imagine there were actually computer networks where people talk to each other and even did things like send pictures, if you can believe it, over online networks before there was the web. And uh, it, it wasn't a good world. It wasn't a world you'd ever want to go back to. It was a, a grim, dirty, cold, unhappy world, but it did exist. Were diamonds always considered like precious metals? Uh, I read books uh, from like uh, hundreds and th- you know hundreds or even thousands of years ago. Obviously, historical fiction is fiction. But um, uh, when did diamonds become uh, considered like a precious metal alongside gold and silver? And what? What created its value? Was it, was it, but was there not decree? Was there a, was it like organically almost like how Bitcoin uh, has its value today and crypto in general? Uh, I'm trying to like trace its history. I think it traces pretty well with gold, um, lots of analogies. Uh, but, but one thing you haven't asked is why I'm in Dubai right now. And part of the answer to your question touches on why I'm in Dubai. I think in the United States, with the exception of that one brief period in the late 70s, diamonds have not historically been considered uh, a serious asset class for investors in the same way gold and silver are. But in this part of the world, in Asia, um, very much in the, in the Gulf area, uh, diamonds, precious stones have been looked at as as forms of of I don't like to use the word investment as much as asset diversification, where you're actually spreading the risk with your portfolio into other things. But originally, I mean, diamonds. The, the earliest stories of the the famous diamonds, like the Hope Diamond and the Kohinoor and so forth, they go they go back around to the, almost to the time of Christ, and they were like often the eyes in some some Hindu. Uh, uh, yeah. temple or something, the eyes of the statue, and then someone would steal one of the eyes and run away with it, and it would develop into the Hope Diamond and so forth. So these things have been prized for their beauty since they've been discovered, basically. Um, much like gold, the, the actual rock has been prized for jewelry and appearance, and it kind of later became, because it was valuable for appearance, it became valuable for money as a medium of exchange. Diamonds have never crossed that bridge. 
they've never been looked at as a particularly good medium of exchange. And I doubt that they ever would be. Why um, is that? Is it too hard to like validate its authenticity? Um, that's part of it. Uh, that I don't mean to dismiss that at all. That, uh, validating its authenticity is a is like playing multidimensional chess, yeah. as opposed to validating gold, which is more like simple beginner checkers. Yeah. Uh, diamonds are just much more complicated, and that that creates a lot of the friction in trying to create a trading mechanism because of all the friction of having to figure out what you're looking at and and whether it's whether it's been properly graded and and a, a million factors that go into it. And then how you turn that into some kind of an investment vehicle. Um, you can do it, but it's you compare it to something easy like gold. And the question is, why would you do it? What's the advantage of trying to use diamonds for money when you have something really much more suitable? Oh, I almost said gold, but I, I meant to say cryptocurrency. Mm. Digital uh, which gold. Which, of course, was digital gold, which, of course, was designed for the job. And, 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 it, and it makes a lot of sense. What's up with the supply of, I love diamonds. I love getting diamonds every year for my wife. I, I love the way they look. I like keeping them clean. Uh, you know, in, in popular social media, pop culture, the movies that we've seen over the year, like you said, you're right. Diamond, the, the messaging around diamonds in the, in the U.S. has been largely like very, I don't know if saturated is the word, but diluted may be a better word. And so uh, the biggest thing I think, and you tell me if this is a myth or a lie or there's truth. The biggest thing that people perceive with diamonds is that the supply is con is controlled completely by like centralized bodies, by like companies like De Beers and 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 things like that. Uh, whereas like uh, gold and some other precious metals, it's a, it's a largely like, and I'm not talking about crypto for a second. I'm talking about other precious metals. The the supply is largely a kind of distributed, decentralized, and really anyone could become like a like a like a gold pro prospector and and as long as like all the land in the world is not completely controlled gold can always be secured by by not these non-parties like it's not permissioned is di right. diamonds so, permissioned no and the world that you were describing was a true world 50 150 years ago in the late 19th century de beers was created specifically to control the supply that's that that was its mission statement like the federal and reserve essentially yeah, we, um, kind of, if you want to use a really nasty analogy, you could use that. Um, I don't think they were evil, but they were designed to, the problem was the supply shocks coming on the, uh, on the market back then. You know, you'd have some huge new diamond discovery happen in, in the middle of Africa. Suddenly, the world would be awash in diamonds. And then five years goes by, and that's not true anymore. And then another, and the diamond prices crash, and then mm. somebody discovers them in Colombia. Suddenly, the diamond price. So... So you had these supply shocks because oh. of the way diamonds were being discovered. So they created De Beers. And De Beers, up until I'm going to pull a date out of the air that's hopefully within 20 years of being accurate, maybe around 1950 or so, De Beers, um, maybe a little later, they lost their monopoly position, their cartel position. And they no longer, and no one anymore, controls the supply of diamonds. It's, it's become very fragmented. You still have large diamond companies, you know, like most industries. You know, five diamond the whole miners back, yeah. control eighty percent, but but you also have artisanal miners in South Africa digging on the riverbanks, just like those gold prospectors you were talking about. I've I've gone there with them and dug dug for diamonds on the river in Sierra Leone. Artisanal diamonds, yeah. So, artisanal diamonds are becoming a big thing just just in the past few years, especially. My friend just uh, was 
just got married, was proposing to his wife, and he was walking me through the month-long journey of, of his diamond. And his diamond has a whole story of where it was found, who found it, how it was prospected, which company, like the providence of diamonds for the retail customer matters now. But it never did really before. It's, it's interesting, right? Um, you're bringing up a very interesting conversation. One of the issues is whether the, the provenance of a diamond matters. And a large part of the diamond industry right now is going to a defensive maneuver to address that every single diamond, to address the concern that every single diamond had an ethical, uh, eco-conscious yeah, journey, you know, that, that kind of thing. But, but to me, that's playing defense. Much more interesting is what you just touched on is not showing that this diamond didn't have bad origins. It's to show this diamond had interesting origins, yeah. origins that are fun to talk about. Like this was discovered by, by a, a man in his 20s who was trying to feed his wife and kids and was near starvation, but he suddenly found this diamond on the riverbank and was able to sell it. And now his kids are in college. And, you know, the, the fun sort of real world part of the diamond industry, I think, is not talked about as much as it should be. Too much of it is sort of the negative and trying to avoid the negative. I, uh, I want to get into crypto, but before I do, I'm still trying to get like a grasp of the, the diamond world today. Uh, what, what am I missing here? Okay, so here's another question. Who is the biggest consumer of, of global diamonds in the world today? Like, who are, who are, where is the demand coming from, from like a high level down? Well, the United States represents about 35 to 40% of the demand for diamonds. So, so the United States is the big deal on the diamond stage, and right behind it is China. Um, and then you have kind of the other centers of the world, like you'd expect, you know, the EU and the GCC factors in there somewhere. Yeah. Japan is a big deal. Um, not so much in Africa itself, ironically. So it's like any sort of other luxury consumer product. You know, I would guess that the distribution of product versus is similar to the distribution of, of diamond consumption, just because it's very much a luxury product and it, it tends to behave like one. So now you have, uh, you have this asset that uh, globally and for a very long time uh, has been seen as, as, a, as an asset. It's a precious metal. It's beautiful. Uh, there's, you know, we don't, we, we don't need to get into more of the details of that. And so now you want to, uh, with your open sea marketplace and with ice cap, you're, you're trying to, to then represent a diamond as a non-fungible token. So this is the biggest thing. And then allowed it to be traded on a trade on a marketplace. Now, a lot of people are tokenizing gold and pre other precious metals, stocks, ERC 20 tokens. Everyone who's listening to the show has heard about this before. If you've heard even the ads that I've had on this show, we've talked about tokenized stocks, tokenized precious metals. This is different because you're doing it as a non-fungible token. So each token is specifically connected to a very specific diamond or, or maybe other type of precious metals or gems or whatever in the future. Why that route? And, and, and you're, like you talk about defensive versus offensive, you created more work for yourself there. It's, it's, a better, it's a better solution because honestly, I see NFTs being more used for things like this than I do for art and maybe I'm being short-sighted. But how did, you come up to, how did you come to these conclusions? Yeah, how much time do you have? Yeah. Uh, not <laughs> enough. So I was, uh, you'll appreciate this story because you know my son, Eric. I was um, uh, at his house one morning and the two of us were up early before anyone else was. We were drinking coffee and he starts telling me about something 
called non-fungible token, something I'd never heard of before. And he was explaining what, what it was, ERC-721, and it's off the Ethereum blockchain and blah, blah, blah. And I was sitting here trying to have you know more and more coffee because I yeah. was like, dude, slow down. <laughs> I'm not a techie. Um, you're not even a techie. I finally said, Eric, great, but why are you telling me all this? And he said, because, Dad, you could take this technology and use it to open up the diamond industry to the investment community. And it was like a light bulb just went off. And at the time, Eric knew I'd been involved with diamonds all my life with, with Polygon and our trading platform. He did not know, very few people even in the diamond industry know, that Polygon was started by me as an attempt to open up the diamond industry to investors, as I said a moment ago. And we were trying to do it in a way that would create fungibility between diamonds. I won't go into how we were trying to do that or, or no, any... No, like, can you please? Because I'm very curious how you would do that in the 70s and 80s. Well, I'll, I'll dip a toe into it. We were going to create something called a diamond unit that would have a mathematical ratio. It would be a specific type of diamond, a one carat D flawless, perfectly cut. That has a value in the marketplace. You could use mathematics to connect the value of that diamond, which we called a diamond unit, to every other possible diamond out there. Like a half carat would be maybe worth 40% what the one carat, you know, that kind of thing. So you, you create a grid, a multidimensional grid, and then you're using your diamond unit as your point of fungibility and everything else simply has a ratio to that fungibility. Okay, long story short, didn't work, wasn't gonna work, it was a crazy idea. And uh, everybody and their dog is now trying to do something similar with blockchain and they're going about it the wrong way by trying to create fungibility when you can't create fungibility with diamonds. And I've been talking about sportsbet.io and their clubhouse, which is a huge community. When you play, when you make a bet, when you do a spin, they pay you with free hands, cash back, and bets. You can play all sorts of games, and they've been doing this for so long in a free, fair, and transparent way on the blockchain. Well, that's not why I'm excited today and why I'm talking to you about this. Because now they're taking this community to the next level by sponsoring the Southampton Football Club. You're talking about millions of British football fans can now see the Bitcoin logo on the front and the sleeve of also the Walford Football Club. I mean, how amazing is that? You're talking about not sponsoring your company. You're talking about sponsoring Bitcoin and crypto. Millions of people around the world are now going to be seeing this and joining the Sportsbet.io clubhouse to earn more points, to play games, and to be part of that community. There's really no other way that you can use and spend your crypto and then actually earn more back and be part of this whole community. So listen, make sure you guys join sportsbet.io forward slash podcast. Give them the support that they deserve because they're supporting us and me. Go play some games, get some free hands, get some free spins, and make sure you check them out and support them on the Southampton Football Club's first game. Whenever that's going to be, check it out. So you are essentially trying to create a you, you're creating like a, like a token pair, essentially. You're creating a standard of how to value diamond prices, like how to price out diamond. Like you said, one carat uncut. Is that what you said? Or was it cut? No, no, no. That's, that's what I was trying to do in the 70s. Yeah, that's yeah, not yeah. What I'm no, doing. I'm trying to follow. I'm trying yeah. to re-follow what you were saying. So you, this, in yeah. the 70s, you were creating a, almost like a, like a standard of how pri diamonds were priced. And then you were going to price all other yes. diamonds based on that ratio of pricing yes. to Brilliant. Yes. That's brilliant. Well, I could see how sounded, it wouldn't work, though. Sounded brilliant to a 21-year-old, you know. <laughs> no, it sounds brilliant to me. 
I'm 31. I I, I spent, yeah, there you go. I spent six years of my life trying to make it work. And then finally we changed direction. But what was ironic is Eric did not know that, that my earlier, the earlier part of my career had spent trying to solve the diamond investment problem through creating fungibility and finally giving up on it. And so when he said these tokens could be used to represent a diamond, and then the tokens could be traded on a marketplace, a blockchain-based marketplace, it was like, OMFG. I just, you know, seven years of my life in New York suddenly got vindicated because I suddenly realized the technology of the blockchain could be used to solve the problem that I'd never been able to solve and which I'd, I'd spent too many years trying to solve. It was like a eureka moment. And I said to Eric, you realize I'm the number one guy on the planet who should execute on this idea. And he said, I know, that's why I'm talking to you. Yeah. And <laughs> that's how we started down this road and how we created IceCap. So let's get into the details of, 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 uh, of diamonds. What is an investment grade diamond? What does that mean? How are... Oh, yeah, I've got a favorite. I mean, that's one of my favorite questions. And my answer to that question will be different than anyone else's answer in the diamond industry. Traditionally, the answer to that question is an investment grade diamond is the most expensive kind of diamond, you know, the best, you know, the the biggest, the best, the purest. And that's like saying, you know what that's like saying? It's like saying the best investment real estate is the most expensive. It's like saying Fifth Avenue storefront real estate is the best investment. Meanwhile, it's the worst. Would you agree with that? It's probably the worst right this moment. You it's can't always say been the, the worst. Best of Lost leader, well, flagship store. Well, yeah, okay, maybe. May but the, the point is just because something's expensive to buy doesn't mean it's the best investment, does it? And yet most people in the diamond industry will tell people all day long, oh, investment grade means the very best, the most expensive. I say BS. You know what? We consider investment grade diamonds that are as easy to sell as they are to buy. Because if you don't have liquidity in a market, you don't have a viable investment. And there are some diamonds that are much easier to sell than other diamonds. We only use those diamonds for our platform and for what we tokenize. And I can get into the gemology of what those diamonds are, but that, that's a longer conversation. I know that uh, there's something called like the four C's. Uh, yes. I think it's like quality. Well, it's, that's not a C, it's a Q. Carrot, color, cut. I lost and clarity. 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 I knew it was, there I knew you it was go. missing one. And, and when you say cut, make sure you, you make it clear that cut is not the same as shape. Often that's conflated. Cut does not mean whether it's pear shape or round. Cut means the quality of the cut, which they can grade now on a, on a linear scale. But here's what's interesting about the four C's. Only 60, roughly 60% of the value of a diamond is determined by the four C's. The other 40% is determined by stuff that's beyond the four C's. Almost no one knows this, except people in the diamond industry, of course. Um, they think that the four C's create essentially a commodity. Yeah. Like, like a, a one carat GVS1 triple excellent is the same as every other one carat GVS1 triple excellent. Yet, if you go to any of the big diamond detail sites right now, you can do, you can do the experiment yourself. Put in a range like 1.00 to 1.05 carat weight, GVS2, just pull something out of the hat, triple excellent, and look at what comes back to you in the results screen. You'll get hundreds and hundreds of diamonds, and you'll see that the most expensive in the list per carat is about 40% more expensive than the least expensive. Now, what, what would- So there's a 40% cause, like gap in pricing. Yeah, there's a 40% spread price difference. Yeah. Now, 
what, what, what's causing that price difference? Are some diamonds just better deals than others? No, of course not. The market would arbitrage that. The truth is there are factors going on beyond the four C's and not one in a thousand consumers is aware of that fact. We take all the issues that go into that beyond the four C's, all the, the problem issues, and we screen out those stones. So any stone that has any of those beyond the four C's problems, we eliminate from consideration for tokenization. And what that does is it creates a pool of diamonds that are much more liquid because most any diamond dealer would tell you, I can't bid on a diamond without seeing it. Well, that's because of those beyond the four C's problems. By weeding those out, it becomes possible for diamond dealers to bid on these stones without having to see them. And that's what creates an actual real market where the actual industry itself is setting a floor on these diamond prices and hence generating liquidity. So what is an investment grade diamond? One that is as easy to sell as it is to buy. How do you get that? By weeding out those factors beyond the four C's. I'm going to ask you what those factors are in a second, if you can tell us. But essentially what you're saying is all diamonds exist on like a crazy spectrum. And for the life of lifespan of diamonds, we've never been able to like standardize them. And we've tried using these four C's, but we can only account for 60% of the properties. There's 40% of other properties that are so wide and sporadic that even in the world of today, we've not been able to efficiently create a better standard. So what you did was you actually said, to hell with those outliers, I'm only going to include in the standardization process, those ones that I know are ones that don't have those 40% outlier problems. Therefore, my friend who's a diamond dealer doesn't have to grab his glass eye and look at it because he knows you're not even including in tokenization, you're not including those ones even in tokenization. They're not even going to be included. There's a term for them in the industry. They're called problem stones. And ballpark, I've been told by diamond experts, and I'm not a diamond expert. I've just been in the diamond industry all my life. So a lot of it's rubbed off. But the the true people that are buying and selling every day have told me that about 85% of the diamonds out there are problem stones. So um, it's not like a fringe outlier element. It's that's what most of the stones are. They have issues. Uh, So if you want a marketplace that isn't tainted by that, you just simply set up your program standards to not include problem stones. What what are those issues like like for for what for example? Yeah, okay. You ready? Clouds. Does the diamond have a cloud? Where is it? How bad is it? What's it look like? How's it affecting the 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 light and the transparency and the the reflection? Okay? You never heard of clouds, did you? No, I never heard. That would have been a great spot to go to commercial by the way. If I did if my editors <laughs> were good, they did that. Yeah, so no, I never even heard one? of clouds. I've never even no. heard anyone say it. And I've seen, I've seen the diamond being looked at dozens of times. Yeah. yeah. I've given you best kept secrets here. So this is good stuff. I'll throw another one out at you. Graining. Does the diamond have graining? Have you ever heard of graining? No. No, you haven't. And um, there's different kinds of grading. And there's grading that's more serious than other kinds of grading. Man-made um, or like it's just no, it's how natural. It's, it's part, natural. Of the, part of the, of the diamond. Um, okay. That, that just gives you two of the gemological issues, but we go beyond gemology. Are you ready for some of the really bad ones? The grading certificate from the GIA that shows that it's a GBS one, blah, blah, blah. What if that certificate is incorrect? In fact, let's go further. What if that certificate is a counterfeit? 
Or what if it was graded at one of the GIA labs that has looser standards than another? How do you connect a diamond to the actual certificate? I never understood that either. That's easy. Uh, when you're talking GIA certificates, uh, and, and GIA is the gold standard, so to speak, mm. in, in the industry for grading. And so I'm not trying to in any way disparage GIA. They're the best. And they're the ones that invented the 4Cs grading system. But no one's perfect. But no one's perfect. And they even say that if you look on the fine print of their certificate, they say this is a subjective opinion. And you know what? It is a subjective opinion, um, and which is which is an issue. And the, the long term president of the GIA, Bill Boyajian, uh, ex-president, um, is now the chairman of the board of ICECAP because he he so oh, respects cool. what we're doing and, and understands the geology behind it. Um, but it, uh, it it gets worse. Let's say even the certificate is correct. It wasn't counterfeit. The grading's accurate. There's no problem stone going on. What if the stone got chipped since it was graded? Let's say it was graded three years ago and it got chipped somehow out, out there in the wild yeah. being worn. Now, that, that has a huge impact on the value of the stone. Now, you're going to have to recut the stone if you want a perfect diamond again. And maybe now it's going to drop from 1.01 carat to 2.98 carat. That's a huge drop in value to drop below that level. So how do you account for that? So these were all problems that IceCap had to solve in putting together a platform that, that we believe can withstand the most intense scrutiny by anybody in terms of the validity of what we're doing. How does it work in practice now? Uh, how active is the site? Are there diamonds being kept somewhere? Yes, we, we are in what we call um, a beta mode of opening. We've opened for business a few months ago. Uh, we've made token sales. We've moved diamonds into the vault. Um, some of the tokens have been redeemed for the diamonds. So all the pieces are working, but we haven't scaled it yet. We're still sort of making sure the systems are rock solid. It's one of the reasons I'm over here in Dubai, um, because we might decide to actually vault the diamonds in Dubai. And just, just to be clear, maybe we haven't been clear on this. What we're doing is we're taking individual ERC721 tokens, creating them, and assigning a specific token to a specific diamond. The token goes up on OpenSea, available for sale. The diamond goes into a vault. So where's the vault? Aha, that's one of the things that right now the vault is in New York. We are looking at other options and there's a Can lot you, of regulatory. Sorry, the, tax the microphone is scratching up against your collar, I think. There we go. Oh, I'll leave it alone. Oh, perfect. Um, yeah, we're, we're going up. Uh, there's a lot of regulatory and tax issues that bear on where the diamonds should, should be held in custody. Yeah. That kind of stuff is really boring, but um, it, th these are some of the of the details that we're just making sure we have fully thought through and fully polished before we try to go nuts scaling this this business. But it is operational. There's about forty or fifty diamond tokens up there right now. If you go to OpenSea.io and and type in Ice Cap Diamonds, you'll go right to that page. And I'm going uh, to you do can that buy right, one now. right now. Yep, that's what I'm going to do right now. I want to go up there. I like doing this because then I could uh, ask you questions on it. And I know that mm -hmm. the listeners are probably uh, doing the same thing. So our own site is icecap.diamonds. Great domain name, by the way, icecap.diamonds. Okay, so I'm on OpenSea. Is OpenSea yours? No, no. OpenSea is, uh, is a separate company. It's a trading platform. We, we are using them just like oh, if we yeah. were a, a, a big board stock. We'd use the New York Stock Exchange for trading. We I remember hearing about OpenSea. Oh, this is so cool. It's on OpenSea. You have the ice cap diamond, you have a picture of it, the rating, the GIA thing, and then there's an ERC-721 token. 
That's the actual thing. That's but this is so cool. Oh, and then you can actually see the trading history, the price. It's in price in USDC. It's created. What? Click, if you click on the expanded token in the upper right of the expanded token, you can actually go right to the GIA certificate itself and see all that stuff. Oh, yeah. Um, oh, so. There's a verified contract and mint. Everything is, this is great. Is there a legal connect? What is the legal connection of the diamond to the token? Is there like a jurisdiction uh, that has. You asked through- the best questions. That, that so is. I have a show. Yeah, no, that's <laughs> that's that's kind of the the sixty four thousand dollar question. What is the legal relationship? And uh, we had to we have some of the finest lawyers in the country that are working on this that are experts in blockchain regulation and tax issues. And so uh, here is here is the legal relationship. What we could not do is have the token represent actual ownership of the diamond. The token is not titled to the diamond. The token is more akin to a, so, so it's not a warehouse receipt as that term would be used in the gold business, for example. So the token is more like a very specific gift card that can only be used for the purchase of that diamond. So the token can be traded back and forth, mm-hmm. back and forth, back and forth. But at any point, the owner of the token has the right to exchange that quote unquote gift card, that ERC-721 token for ownership of the diamond. They send us the token, we send them the diamond. So it's completely redeemable. But the reason we had to set it up that way, if we didn't set it up that way, if the warehouse receipt, if the token was a warehouse receipt representing ownership, I get it. then yeah. every time, yeah, you know what I'm going to say. Every time it traded, you'd have to charge sales tax, you'd have to KYC your customer, all manner of hell would break loose. I see what you and, did. You followed what was, what's very smart about this was you followed precedent and case law with gift cards. I can yes. give gift cards to people. You can trade them. They're closed loop. So the government likes that. It's the same thing with, with this token here. It's a closed loop token because the token can only be redeemed by you guys in, in that sense. But now by doing that, you're not creating, basically, you're not creating a taxable event every time it's traded. And that's right. why it's, it's, and it doesn't need to be registered as a security, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, actually gift card law is a great law. We tried attributing gift card law to crypto years ago. Uh, I tried convincing the government that like I was selling actually like gift cards when I was selling Bitcoin on BitInstant. But uh, when I stayed back at your place, I was going through that. But um, because crypto is open loop, they didn't, they, and could be re- redeemed by anyone. Those to- anyone could open up like a toll booth to go in and out of crypto. But then I said, you could do the same thing with gift cards. But then they said, yeah, well, gift cards can be canceled by a centralized issuer. So that's what it came down to. So here, the crypto is not the thing. It's, it's the actual diamond uh, being, uh, I, being connected to the, to the token itself, which is very cool. I wonder if like, I wonder if other NFTs can use your precedent in case law for the same thing. What type of like transactions are you seeing? Like how many people are trading uh, these tokens on a, on a given oh, day? Again, we're, we're tiny. We're just, we're barely open for business. So we've sold pr- probably total sales of just under a hundred thousand dollars in total. It's uh, a lot of, it's a lot of money tokens. for a, for, for a test run. Uh, a lot of money for a test run, but for, for the diamond industry, that's pretty small potatoes. So we're looking for the um, first quarter of, of next year to really start gearing this thing up and seeing some volume. But uh, and another, I mean, not to get too into the legal weeds, but another sort of like moat around the concept. We didn't want to put all of our eggs into the gift card basket. So what we're also doing is using the 
layaway basket. Now, that's not very popular these days, layaway, but if you're familiar with the concept, it used to be a big deal like back in the Depression. Let's say you want to buy a widget at the local store and you don't have enough money for the widget. So you go to the store and you'll say, like the widget costs $100, you only have $10. So you start laying away and every week you put $10 down and in 10 weeks, they give you the widget because you've made your final payment. Yeah. So that that's another uh, regulatory silo of law that that is beneficial to our cases. You know, the title to the widget doesn't change hands until yeah. your last payment. So in our case, when you redeem the diamond, and these are diamonds that are you know we're obviously worth thousands of dollars. When you redeem the diamond out of the token for the diamond, you have to pay a final fifty dollars. Now you truly own the diamond. A taxable event, a KYC event has occurred. Um, and so the, the gift card gets you most of the way there and the final $50 gets you the final oh, like way to that. taking delivery. Yeah. Good point. Right. Yeah. So I like how all the worlds were connected and then you can stay in crypto when you're in crypto, these things can be traded. They can be part of uh, portfolios. They could be hedged. These contract, these tokens can be loaned. Uh, 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 I could see companies like Nexo, Voyager, BlockFi accept these as collateral for for loans. Well, that's that's all the time we have, everyone. Thank you so much for for listening to Untold Stories. Thank you, Mr. Voorhees, Jack Voorhees, for for coming on the show. Uh, uh, This was a brilliant enjoy your warm time in Dubai. And for all those listeners, please leave us a review. Make sure you you listen to to all my other shows. Enjoy. Uh, I really, really love doing this show. Uh, And I wouldn't be here. I'd have to thank BlockWorks Group they're such a, a great media and production company. I trust them so much. Without them, the show wouldn't be here today. Make sure you check out their other podcasts. There's like 20 other podcasts in their network that's run by my friends. We'll teach you so many other things at blockworksgroup.io. I'm Charlie Schramm. This show is produced and uh, edited by so many amazing people. The content, check them out. Give them some credit at untoldstories.com. Have a great weekend, everyone, and I'll talk to you later.